welcome to the JNMP podcast. I'm JNMP podcast editor Elizabeth Hyten. This month we're discussing the novel guidelines for the diagnosis and management of idiopathic intracranial hypertension, a paper which was recently published in the JNMP by Susan Milan and colleagues. I'm happy to welcome the senior author of that paper, Dr. Alexandra Sinclair from the Institute of Metabolism and Systems Research at the University of Birmingham, who's going to walk me through this landmark paper. Alexandra, welcome to the podcast. Good morning. So I wondered if you could start off by telling us a bit about exactly what is idiopathic intracranial hypertension and in particular sort of how common is it and how does it present? Idiopathic intracranial hypertension is a condition characterized by raised intracranial pressure for which we can find no underlying mass lesion. The condition occurs over 90% of cases in women who have a BMI over 30 between puberty and menopause. And also the condition really has no underlying etiology identified as yet. I would also add that the nomenclature for the condition has evolved over the years. So although we're calling it idiopathic intracranial hypertension today, in the past we have referred to it as benign intracranial hypertension, although we don't anymore because we know the condition isn't, isn't benign because it can cause visual loss. And in the past we've also referred to it as pseudotumor cerebri. So there's been some evolution of the nomenclature uh, over the decades. It's an interesting condition in that it typically presents with headaches, so between 75 and 94% will have headache at presentation. But actually, papilledema is the hallmark feature that usually gets picked up early on from the diagnostic pathway. And this can often be an incidental pickup by the high street optician, or it may be that patients that are being seen by their primary care doctor or in an emergency department with headache will be found to have papilledema and will thereafter be diagnosed following the diagnostic workup potentially with IIH. And then you were asking me how common it is. Well, typically if we look back through the literature, we've described it as a rare disease. So usually about two per 100,000, but up to 20 per 100,000 in the obese female population. We've been looking into this in more detail recently and actually pulled 23,000 cases of IIH from the UK health records, from the hospital records. And these have very clearly shown that the incidence is rising so although back in 2002, we saw incidents in the region of two per 100,000, by 2016, this was at five per 100,000 in the general population. And this is tracking up with the global obesity rates. So there's a very clear link that we can see now with the escalating incidents and global obesity rates increasing over the decades. Interestingly, sort of particular to women. Um, you mentioned that your, obviously the paper itself is about the revision of guidelines or sort of the recent consensus guidelines. And I wondered, um, you mentioned obviously that the, there's been an evolution of terminology regarding this particular disease. Is that the only reason for the revision of the guidelines or is it just time for an update? So you're asking why we needed a revision of the guideline. At the moment, this isn't a revision of a guideline because this is the first guideline that's been produced ever internationally for IIH. The disease is very multidisciplinary. It's a combination of neurologists, neurosurgeons, ophthalmologists, A&E doctors, dietitians, and radiologists, all closely involved with looking after these patients. And in the past, the trouble has been that practices have varied very widely across the globe. So these guidelines mark a big step to bring together the practices of these different physicians and doctors from around the globe and from different specialities to help standardize and improve care. And really the strength has been that the guideline was designed and written using this multidisciplinary team of different people, which formed a special interest group. 
And what we initially did was to review the, the literature and the evidence and where there has been firm evidence, we have been able to use that in the guideline. But there are also areas of management where we haven't had randomized controlled trial evidence. And in these areas, we have used questionnaires which have been disseminated widely to experts and generalists in the field to bring together a consensus of practice. And we've also sought expertise from international leaders in the field from Europe and the US. And then once the guideline was beginning to be formed and put together, we had it critically reviewed and assessed by a number of professional bodies. So we sought the um, review from the Association of British Neurologists, the Society for British Neurological Surgeons, the Royal College of Ophthalmologists and the British Association for the Study of Headache. And so the summary document that we've, that we've presented in the JNMP is really a guideline that reflects the latest evidence, but also the breadth of expertise from a wide group of professionals. So hopefully we are able to therefore have a, a document which is useful to a broad variety of people. Absolutely. And so it sounds like a very landmark paper. You've mentioned in the paper, it obviously sort of delineates between diagnostic uncertainties and then obviously the management of IIH. And I wondered if we could first talk about perhaps, you know, what are the most common diagnostic uncertainties when you are assessing for this particular condition? And of course, how do the guidelines in the group and together of all these different multidisciplinary health physicians, how do they suggest tackling this type of uncertainty? Yes, um, I think that's a, that's a good area to talk about. So probably when we look at IIH, there's two most common uncertainties. And that would be, number one, whether the patients indeed have papilledema or not, and what the cutoff for the lumbar puncture pressure we should suggest. So when we talk about the diagnosis of IIH, there are diagnostic criteria which are laid out in the guidelines, and they state that all patients must have papilledema and must have a lumbar puncture opening pressure above 25 centimetres of CSF. And then the brain imaging, which would be suggested to exclude uh, a lesion in the brain, hydrocephalus, but also to exclude venous sinus thrombosis. And importantly, the guidelines have recommended that patients that present with papilledema would have urgent brain imaging. So that would be CT or MRI scan within 24 hours of presentation. But in addition, in the guideline, they also strongly recommend that MR venography or CT venography is conducted at the same visit within the first 24 hours. And that's because if we pick up patients with venous sinus thrombosis, these are treated in, a, in an entirely different way and need to be assessed rapidly and treated. So coming back to those diagnostic uncertainties, identifying true papilledema can be quite tricky. So in those patients with very florid papilledema, this is obvious and easier to pick up. But in those cases that are where the papilledema is less pronounced, this can be confused with pseudopapilledema. So for example, in pseudopapilledema, the disc may be may look different due to congenitally anomalous discs, for example, or where there's optic nerve head drusen, or hypermetropic discs, or myopic discs, or for example, a myelinated nerve fiber. And all these factors are not true papilledema, but we need to identify these and not investigate them as IIH. So we really recommend in the guideline that where there is any um, doubt as to whether this is true papilledema or not, that there should be early review by an experienced clinician or ideally a neuro-ophthalmologist to correctly interpret the optic disc, because this is gonna prevent unnecessary worry for the patient, unnecessary scans and unnecessary lumbar punctures. And then the second that diagnostic uncertainty is usually surrounding the interpretation of the LP pressure. The guidelines is quite clear that the diagnostic criteria should be an LP opening pressure greater than 25 to diagnose IIH. And we have written that in the guideline that those patients with a pressure below 25 there are strong reservations about the likelihood of diagnosing IIH. But even those with a higher pressure, i.e. above 25, 
the guidelines is, is quite clear in that it will suggest that the higher the pressure, the increasing likelihood of that pressure being pathological. And then we refer to a gray zone where pressures could be between 25 and 30. And in this gray zone, the pressures may be pathologically raised, but also the pressure could be normal for some people. So the pressures in the gray zone between 25 and 30 need to be interpreted with caution. And we have to remember that a lumbar puncture reading is really just a snapshot recording and that ICP will vary diurnally over 24 hours. So if there is an isolated intracranial pressure reading above 25, this is not diagnostic of IIH unless there are the other features of IIH from the diagnostic criteria also there, i.e. papilledema. And we would suggest in the guideline that where the LP pressure doesn't fit the clinical picture, then we should interpret that pressure reading with caution and go back and check on whether it's true papilledema and potentially repeat the lumbar puncture. Because it's really vital that once we label a patient with papilledema, we get it right at that point. And that once we then make the label of IIH, we are correct as we move forward with the diagnostic management. Absolutely, which of course brings me to my next question about um, obviously the core principles that your guidelines um, recommend for the management of IAH. And I wondered if you could just walk us through that, assuming that the diagnosis has been made accurately, what's next? Yeah, so the next stage is really is three key themes that we talk about in the guideline. The first is to protect the vision. The second is to manage the underlying disease. And then the third is to address headache morbidity. So in terms of protecting the vision, there is a real, a real risk of visual loss in this condition. And it's a known complication of IIH. And in some studies, the risk of visual loss has been quoted up to 25%. But in many modern centers, we think the number will be much less than this. But what we suggest in the guideline is that we identify patients that have fulminant IIH, which is defined as rapidly declining vision over four weeks. And these patients would represent a medical emergency that would need rapid assessment and uh, accurate assessment by an experienced clinician. And by experienced clinician, we would mean one that has confidence in their experience in IIA, and that these patients would need urgent referral for a CSF diversion procedure, a neurosurgical procedure. So then the second uh, core principle is the management of the underlying disease. And weight loss has been highlighted as a vital disease-modifying treatment for those with a BMI of greater than 30. It has previously been shown that weight loss this was in a prospective crossover study that came out in the BMJ in 2010. And that showed that weight loss can significantly reduce intracranial pressure, papilledema, headaches, and visual failure. So we know that the data is, is there to suggest that patients do well when they lose weight, but we also know that long-term weight loss is notoriously difficult to achieve and maintain. And that's why more research is needed in this area. And we're actually currently running a randomized control trial funded by the NIHR to evaluate the efficacy of bariatric surgery to be disease modifying in IIH. And then the third principle that we come on to is the headache morbidity. And for patients, this is a really key area because headaches are extremely disabling and chronic aspect of IH management. And they've been shown in the literature to significantly impact on quality of life for these patients. In the past, headache management was not particularly prioritized, despite it being such a devastating part of the patient's time with IIH. So this guideline really draws attention to the issues of headache. It also states that there's no randomized control trials yet in this area, but we do establish in the guidelines some pragmatic steps to help guide physicians to manage headache, both in the acute setting, so when the, the diagnosis is newly made, also the chronic headaches, which may go on for years and years and years in these patients, and also how to approach those patients that present to the accident and emergency department with flare-ups or headache attacks, which is a very frequent situation.
So my final question was really about who are the guidelines for? But I mean, it seems quite obvious to me now that of course they are for, now that you've got a synthesized concept of IAH, and these are of course, as you mentioned, not just a revision of guidelines, but in fact the first guidelines. They are in fact for a wide range of physicians and clinicians um, and from you know primary and tertiary secondary care. Absolutely. And I think that different physicians will find different parts of the uh, guideline more appropriate for them. And we've tried to lay the guideline out in a very easy to follow layout. So, for example, that the guideline actually consists of 23 questions which are laid out. And you can look at those list of questions that we've, that we've addressed and you can pick the part of the guideline that you need to look at. So, for example, how should papilledema be investigated? What is the best surgical procedure for visual loss? Or you could look up how should you treat an exacerbation of headache? Or you could look up how should you manage a patient in pregnancy when they have IIH? Or unusually, how should you manage a patient with IIH without papilledema? And we've also put some recommendations in the guideline about how frequent the follow-up should be in outpatients and how you should monitor these patients once they've been diagnosed. And I think that's also made more streamlined in the document because we put in three management flow charts, which again, different physicians who who work in different aspects of the healthcare sector may find useful. So for example, the emergency room doctors may find it useful to look at the flow chart, which describes how to manage a patient presenting a papilledema, because of course this is a medical emergency, as we include space occupying lesions, etc. It's only when those scans are relatively normal for excluding other sinister pathologies that we can then go on to think about IIH. We have flow charts for management of IIH, and then flow charts for managing the acute headache presentations to casualty. So hopefully the document is quite easy to quickly reference across. And we've also put together a one-page infogram picture summary, which has recently been published in Practical Neurology. Oh, it's a fantastic guideline and a, and a really useful resource. So we thank you very much for publishing it in the JNMP, and in particular for joining me on the podcast today to speak about it. Thank you very much. I'd like to talk to you. So that was Dr. Alexandra Sinclair from the Institute of Metabolism and Systems Research at the University of Birmingham in the UK. She was talking about the consensus guidelines for idiopathic intracranial hypertension, first of their kind, and it is in the JMMP, and you can download it for free on jmmp.bmj.com. And thank you very much for listening.